Well, good morning. Glad to see you guys here this morning. Watching that video, I had the thought that, you know, there's not exactly going to be a whole lot of frolicking through the fields today, unless you're going to the Chiefs game, which you guys probably aren't, based on the timing of this. But it could be worse. My brother texted me this morning at about 7.30 on his way to bring his youngest son to hockey practice at a balmy negative 23 degrees in Minneapolis, Minnesota this morning. So it could be worse. Just remember that. Um, as we uh, continue in our series, a, a Divine Pursuit, we're taking a look at the Magi this morning. And one of the things that happens in the Adams household at Christmas time uh, is Kelsey and I make our best attempt to sit down with our two and four-year-old and talk to them about the characters that are in our nativity set. And uh, what I've realized with a two and a four-year-old is you don't get past Jesus very much. You know, you, you sit down and say, you know, this is the shepherd, and here's why. And look, look, Daddy, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Yep, yeah, you're right. Well, this is the magic. Daddy, Daddy, it was happy birthday. You know, like it just, we just don't get past Jesus very much in our house. But it's led to some good conversations for Kelsey and I, just um, the characters and why they were there and what, you know, purpose behind them and um, one of the things I've come to realize as I've gotten older is um, we have very much taken the nativity set and nativity scene and, and made it very Americanized culturally. Um, we're very familiar with the story. Uh, you know, we package it really pretty and it, it, we put it on display at Christmas time underneath our tree or in our living rooms and <clears throat> we miss uh, a lot of the story that's behind it, and oftentimes because of wanting to package it well and present it well, we we paint the picture inaccurately, and this morning, um, I just want to talk a little bit about that and making sure that we get the story of the Magi right, um, because misunderstanding uh, the, the big picture here or misunderstanding <clears throat> the story can really lead us to miss the entire meaning behind the Magi. And uh, there's a lot of truth to be unpacked here. And so I'm excited to dive in with this this morning, but um, to point out a couple of those things that I'm saying, you know, what are you talking about? You're painting the picture wrong. Well, first off, the Magi weren't there the night Jesus was born, okay? Um, If you want an accurate uh, scene, if you're kind of a type A personality, take your your wise men and, and put them across the living room. Okay, and then hang the star somewhere in between. That might be a little bit more accurate. Um, you know, we, we love to, to hang that star for all to see over everyone's head, but uh, the reality is that that necessarily isn't the case. And so um, getting the story right allows us to stand on a firm foundation. Getting the story right helps us understand the beauty that is the story of the Magi. <clears throat> So as we look at the story today, uh, I hope that you're able to see how this ties into our divine pursuit, because an accurate story of God's divine pursuit will invoke worship in his people. An accurate story of God's divine pursuit will invoke worship. So we're in Matthew 2, 1 through 12. If you've got a Bible you want to open up there. Um, In Matthew 2, we're briefly introduced to these band of travelers um, magi or wise men, you know, they have mystified and fascinated Bible students and, and scholars for centuries. Um, and the reality is we don't know a ton about them. 
But let's, take, let's read through the story here real quick, and we'll, we'll jump in. <clears throat> now after Jesus was born, in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came from to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, Where is the Christ to be born? They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring him to me, or bring, word, bring me word that I too might come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went... <coughs> Excuse me. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, be, and being warned in a dream, they returned to not return to Herod. They departed to their own country by another way. <clears throat> I think the first thing we got to do is understand who the wise men are. Like I said just a moment ago, we don't have a ton of information about them. But the Greek word that's used for magi or wise men um, is often referred to a class of people. Typically, um, Babylonians or Persians. Uh, they were possibly priests. But the thing that's really a marker for them is they were interested in dreams, astrology, magic, sorcery, and the interpretation of those signs. There's little to no biblical or historical context that to identify them as kings. So if you're, one of your favorite Christmas songs is We Three Kings, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want to ruin that for you, but um, <clears throat> they were not kings, they were most, they were, and there were more than likely three of them. You know, we get the number three based on the gifts that they give. But there's something in the text here that uh, makes me, leads me to think otherwise. Um, when it says, behold, wise men, not behold, three wise men. It says, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And if you skip a verse down into verse 3, he says, when Herod heard this, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. Imagine with me for a second if three men walked into, into Liberty and down to the, down to the square and, and they started saying, where is he? Jesus has come again and, and he's here amongst us. Um, if there were three of them, we would probably say, well, let's open up to Revelation. That doesn't exactly say how this is going to happen. Or we would probably, more than likely probably just blow them off a little bit. Um, but take that same story, and if it's a group of 30 or 50 that are traveling together and they walk into Liberty Square and say, hey, where is he? He's here. He's returned. He's amongst us. It would probably cause us to wrestle a little bit more. And so when in the text it says that Herod was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him, in the historical context, more than likely, a band of travelers were traveling in a group, particularly if they were a higher class like the wise men were. 
But here's the main point why this was troubling to Herod and to the people of Jerusalem. These wise men, they're not Jews. These wise men are talking and speaking and asking questions about some prophecies and some promises of a promised Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for for a very long time. And so it causes a stir for them. Is it possible that these magi are familiar with the God of Israel? Yeah, definitely. If you think about it, um, whether it's Babylon or Persia, they're both to the east. Um, Particularly, Babylon would be very familiar with the children of Israel because that's where they spent their exile. And even even more so, we know from the book of Daniel that the greatest men men and children amongst the Israelites were, were particularly put with these wise men, this class of people, these dream interpreters and such. You know, granted, this is 600 years probably earlier. The exile happened about 600 years earlier. But the Magi were a class of people, and particularly where they're they're interpreted, their interest is in dreams and interpretation of and and, um, text. They would be very familiar with the story of Daniel in the lion's den, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These stories would have been like folklore to them. Even more so, they would definitely be familiar with the writings of Moses, the, the promises and prophecies that come from the prophets, they would be familiar because those are things that they hung their head on. on wisdom. This is where we find wisdom, and we're going to interpret all this stuff in the stars for you. So yeah, they would be familiar with it. Um, there's one story uh, in the Old Testament in Numbers 23 that's really kind of interesting. Um, it's the story of Balaam, who was a prophet, uh, and I'll, I'll just summarize it because it's a long story, but there is a, an evil king named Balak that wants to curse Israel. And so he goes out to hire a prophet that will curse Israel for him. Balaam is the one that steps forward. He's not exactly the most conscientious prophet, but for the right price, he says he'll do it. And so as he sets out to do this, to curse Israel, God intervenes and says, I don't, you know, I don't want this to happen. So he sends an angel with a sword to stand in his way. And Balaam is on a donkey, and you're probably familiar with this, where the story that the donkey can see the angel, but Balaam can't. And so the donkey is not going the way that Balaam wants him to go, and he ends up hurting him, and um, Balaam ends up uh, physically abusing his donkey um, a couple times. Uh, But at the end of the story, the Lord opens up the mouth of the donkey. And through that conviction, Balaam's eyes are open to see this angel, Okay, serious question. Do you guys think that the donkey had the voice of Eddie Murphy in Shrek? I mean, <laughs> just maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But here's the point. He changed, Balaam changes his mind. From, from, instead of cursing Israel, he, he prophesies a blessing over Israel. And you find that blessing in Numbers 24, 17. Um, <clears throat> and he, Balaam prophesies this blessing. He says, I see him, behold, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Which meant this, that there would be a king of kings that would rise out of, out of Israel, that would rule all the nations. And these stargazers, these interpreters, they would know this. They would be fond of things like this. 
And so I have to think that the Magi from the East would be familiar with this prophecy. And so when God causes this unusually heavenly thing, the star to rise, they see it and there is a curiosity and a fire stoked within these Magi. They say, that's it. We've heard about this. Let's go check this out. And so they pack up their possessions and they follow the star to see the newborn king of the Jews. As I said a moment ago, the accurate story of God's divine pursuit will invoke worship in his people. And what we're going to see today from the story of the Magi is that God had specific intentions not to use Jewish men. He had specific intentions to grab a hold of these Magi. You see, we've, been, we've hit this a lot over the last couple of weeks. Tim said it when he taught on the shepherds. If you were here for Drew, Drew taught about this. And we're going to say it again today, that God's divine pursuit is for all people. In order to get the story right, we've got to catch the deeper meaning and the beauty of the story of the Magi. God's divine pursuit means that God is willing to wield the universe to make his son known and worshipped. He uses two groups of people that are so far removed from one another, socially, economically, culturally, ethnically. He uses these Jewish shepherds who are visited by the angels, and then he uses these Gentiles, these magi. That what's amazing, these stargazers, God comes to them in his own grace, through the very channel of their sin and calls them to worship. Even here, Jesus is making wizards into worshipers amongst the nation. You know, why didn't, why didn't God just choose to utilize a scribe or a Pharisee to make his son known and worshiped? Jerusalem's less than six miles from Bethlehem. The scribes and Pharisees would have known the promises. They would have known the prophecies about a Messiah. Wouldn't it have just been easier? The thing is that God had a greater plan in store. It's not that the scribes and Pharisees had forgotten the promise. If you look at the text, it says, Herod assembles all the chief priests and the scribes and the people and inquires them where the Christ was to be born. And what's amazing to me is this. It just says, they told them. Like, oh yeah, well, here, let me, let me let you know. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet, which is Micah 5.2, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now you'd expect the next verse to say, so all the scribes and Pharisees packed up all their stuff and they hightailed it to Bethlehem. No. What do they do? They do nothing. 400 years of silence. They had come, grown accustomed to a silent God. And that, in that silence, it bred indifference instead of anticipation. These men, these, prophets, these scribes and Pharisees, these guys that Herod goes to, they know, they study, they lead others through the prophecy, through the promises in the word of God. They teach about the God of Israel who led them out of Egypt, the God who gave them their promised land. And so when a group of people that are uncommon to them come to them and say, where is he, the king of the Jews? For we saw a star and we rose when it rose and we've come to worship him. The very promises that they teach 
What do they do? Nothing. What's the point in that? The point is to see the bigger picture that God wields the universe to make his son known and worshipped. God is going to accomplish his purposes. God could have just whispered in Joseph's ear, take a trip to Bethlehem. But instead, he moves Rome to do a census of the entire world. Matthew shows that God wants pagan sorcerers among the first to worship Jesus. So what does he do? He commandeers the stars to bring them there. He controls the heavens. He speaks through donkeys. He manipulates the government. Why? Because he controls it all. And what he wants is that the gospel is for all nations. Instead of making this a very cut and dry story using the scribes and Pharisees, he uses, he wields the universe to make his son known and worship, and he uses these Gentile magi to do so. You know, each of the four Gospels, um, while they tell the same story, they're intended for different audiences. In Matthew, um, his intended audience is the Jews. And the main point in Matthew is for him to show that Jesus was the promised Messiah and King. But interestingly, the first people who come to worship Jesus in Matthew are, one, the lowly shepherds, and two, the pagan wise men. That's no accident. You know, Matthew's last words in his gospel are the Great Commission where he says, go into the all Gentile nations and preach the gospel. I love that Matthew bookends his gospel with a focus to the nations. You know, he begins by showing us the nations coming to see the Messiah. And he ends it by telling us to go and tell them about the Messiah. The core of the gospel message is that Jesus has come for all nations. Jesus was not a Jewish savior. He was not an American savior. He was the world's savior. There's no hope or healing and forgiveness of sins outside of Jesus. Our task is is not complete until we tell all people about him. Today, this Christmas season, yet we focus on the come and see, but we know it cannot end without the go and tell. That's the beauty of the story of the Magi, that God in his divine pursuit, he wields the universe to make, him, to make his son known and worshipped by all nations. This is God's design. He did it then, he's still doing it now. You know, his aim is at the nations, all nations to worship his son. That's the first part of this story to get right. The second part is that the story of the, to understand the story of the Magi, it really is a call to worship, a call for all to worship. You know, the indifference that we see in the story from the religious leaders or the violence that we see from King Herod really reveals the broken nature and sinful nature of humans. You know, far too often we are indifferent or far too often we're protecting our own kingdom and those things keep us from the fullness of joy that God has for us. Indifference today is still one of the largest and most dangerous things to Christianity. 
particularly in the American church. When we get the story wrong, it leads us towards indifference, towards an indifference about our life and what we celebrate here. We don't just come to church to check it off the box. We come to worship the Messiah. Getting the story right about the Magi allows us to see a great example of how we should respond. If you take a look at verses 9 through 11, it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Opening up their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. When I was a senior in college, um, our, my, our football team that I was part of was very good, and we had a very realistic goal of winning a national championship. The problem was there was another team in our conference that was also very good. And during the season, we lost to them. And... The way that Division Three playoffs work is there are 32 teams that get into the playoffs. Um, 26 of them are automatic bids, which means if you win your conference, you automatically are in. So there's only six spots for teams that don't win their conference, and there's hundreds of teams vying for that. And so we didn't know if we were going to make it in. And you guys have seen these moments on ESPN before where a team finds out that they've made the tournament and they erupt and celebrate. What I can't, I really can't put into words. We were sitting in a uh, small lecture hall that had stadium seating, and I was probably in the eighth or tenth row, and when our coach got the phone call, and he's talking, and everyone's dead silent, and he says the words, we gladly accept, the place just erupted. And somehow I either teleported or probably more likely crowd surfed from the tenth row down to the ground floor in the room, but there was just this moment of like absolute elation in the, you know, to celebrate that we're in. We, got, we get to go on. Um, there should be a very similar elation and joy towards celebrating our Messiah. Matthew piles up the joy language in this text so that we don't miss it. You know, they didn't just rejoice. They rejoiced exceedingly. And on top of that, they did it with great joy. <laughs> I'm, I picture this group of wise men crowd surfing all the way to Jesus' house. I mean, that's, they're, they are so excited when they see this star. that it's, I mean, They know it's going to lead them right to the king of kings. You know, after the angels appear to the shepherds, it says that they returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen which is still an amazing thing. But here today, our little worldly wizards, these non-Jewish magi, the joy just simply explodes off the page. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That explosive joy is not disconnected from their worship. It's a result of seeing the stars directly connected to their search for the king of kings. So when we read rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, we've got to understand that it is a true adoration and worship of the Messiah. The core of our worship is a heart thing. You know, we've heard Brian talk about this. We worship in spirit and truth, 
And it's a complete and all of life response to who he is, what he's done, what he is doing, and what he will do. These men fell down and worshipped because they believed that the God of Israel was true and that they were looking at the king of kings. The Magi see this newborn king who will reign not only over Israel, but the world. They didn't know exactly what that meant. But what we have to realize is that we are at an incredible advantage. You and I know more of the story of who Jesus was and why he came. We know that the entirety of Jesus' reason for coming was to be a final atonement for our sin, to be that sacrifice on our behalf. That whoever believed in him and confessed him as Lord shall be saved. These magi, they came because they knew that there would be a promise of a new king who would reign. And we should adore him all the more as we come into Christmas with no less joy than these magi because of what we know in the bigger picture. Our worship is a joyful ascribing to declaration of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Worshiping who he is, his authority as the Messiah. Worshiping what he's done as our Savior. And worshiping what he will do as our sovereign God. Seeing the story of the Magi accurately calls us to worship. But even bigger than that, seeing the story, the accurate story of God's divine pursuit is going to invoke worship in his people. So as we close this morning, um, my hope is that you guys find joy in seeing the story of the Magi accurately. And I want to encourage you to respond in just a few ways. I think that we can learn some things from the way that the Magi responded. Um, first is respond personally. Come to him yourself. Jesus' life begins and ends surrounded by two of the most vivid exhibits of faith. You know, at his birth, it's the faith that, that these magi have. And at his death, it's the faith of the repentant thief on the cross next to him. Both were presented with the impossible, if you think about it. For the magi, it was a baby that sure probably didn't look anything like a god. And for the repentant thief... A battered man treated as a criminal surely didn't look the part of the eternal king of glory. The Magi believed in Christ when they had never seen him. They believed in him when the scribes and Pharisees were unbelieving. God wants you personally to come to him in faith. Come in worship, come in prayer, come in adoration of who he is. The Magi didn't send someone in their place to give their gifts to him. They came personally, and I want to encourage you to do the same. The second way that this story encourages us to respond is sacrificially. You know, our action taken, sorry, not our action, the action taken by the Magi show us how to respond. Giving our time, our freedom, and our comfort for him we don't know how far these guys actually traveled, but what we do know is that they were, it was far enough for them to be called foreigners. Undaunted by the danger of travel, undaunted by <clears throat> the threat of, I mean, King Herod's reputation went before him, and they knew that they were coming with a message that was going to be 
dangerous to share with King Herod. They uprooted their lives to pursue the Messiah. They laid their treasures at his feet. Responding to Jesus sacrificially is going to look different for each of us. But our eternal king, our eternal savior is worthy of that sacrifice. The third way is respond immediately. Present what you have to him. Don't wait to have things figured out and have life be perfect. Come as you are. The Magi uprooted their lives. They pursued the Messiah. They brought what they had. Now, yes, they were a class of people that had valuable gifts. But I want you to understand something and make sure you realize this, that we, we, again, we know more of the picture that when Christ ascended into heaven, he left his Holy Spirit. And those who have accepted him have the gifts of the Holy Spirit bestowed upon them. And those gifts bring glory to God. He uses those gifts for that. You know, not all gifts are the same, but they're all precious to God. And they build up his church. They edify and they glorify our king. Present what you have to him today. Give him your mind. Let him fill it. Give him your hands. Let him guide and use them. Give him your future. Let him plan and direct your life. Give him your treasures. Let him store them. Let him invest them for his glory. And finally, I want to invite the worship team back up. I want us to respond worshipfully. We're going to spend a little bit of extended time here at the end of the service in worship. For the Magi, more than traveling, more than giving gifts, the greatest moment in this story is when they fall in worship the king. The Magi were overwhelmed at the sight of the one that they had come so far to see, the one that they had waited so long to honor. And when they saw him, they fell and worshiped him. Our worship means joyfully ascribing, joyfully declaring Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Who he is, his authority, what he's done as our Savior, and what he will do as our sovereign God. You know, I want to encourage you as we close in worship, don't just sing these songs. Declare them. Truly declare them. Think about the words that you're ascribing to Jesus. Declare Jesus as the Messiah today. We have the opportunity to, say, to, to share in the same joy that the Magi did, to rejoice exceedingly with a great joy in worship this morning. Let's do that.